Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. And welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And we're at Episode 26, Henry VIII, Part 3, Anne Boleyn Must Die. This is the third of the English Reformation arc. And this week we have Cyrus joining us on the podcast. Cyrus is not the Persian King of Kings, but a talented visual artist. He's fresh from two years in South America, where he's really learned a great deal. Henry realized his ambition to become head of the church. He was getting richer. He got the young new wife he'd been waiting for for years. There were rebellions, though. Gotta go slow. Need to keep the nobility on my side. So many threads pulling. So much to balance. And he's getting tired of his new wife. We can't tell why at a 500-year distance. Historians speculating on this are probably just taking a Rorschach test. She was getting older and showing it. The sparkling wit, fierce spirits, and sharp tongue once so delightful, grates in domesticitude. The quick intelligence figures out his affairs on the side. Loud support of religious reform, once admirable, now seems shrill and inconvenient when it rubs up against the need to conciliate the militarily powerful conservatives. Not to mention the emperor and the king of France. Romantic prizes desired are discarded once attained. The old dog's head was turned by a new beauty. All these have been put forth as reasons. Holy schnapps. That's crazy. Can't believe historians really worried about things like this. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it honestly sounds more like a glorified Hollywood than history. Well, this era got a lot of Hollywood attention, didn't it? Another reason out there is Anne turning against Cromwell. So Cromwell drums up charges of adultery and incest against her. About the only thing we can tell is that the charges seem thin. The evidence presented seems shaky. It was a put-up job. A frame. The fix was in. Where's Philip Marlowe when you need him? Cromwell made sure the jury returned the verdict he wanted. Anne was beheaded, and a few days later, the king married Jane Seymour. That's right, days. They were ready. She rapidly gets pregnant, miscarriage pregnant again, and she produces a son, Edward, who will follow Henry as King Edward VI. A short reign, only six years, but nonetheless ones that sees executions for religious crimes ended and Protestantism sinking ever deeper into English society. Jane died from complications after giving birth to Edward. The miracle hasn't happened yet. The miracle will save women from death by childbirth, to a first approximation, but it's still in the future. For all of human history, people have wanted to save women from the fatal complications of childbirth, but only a miracle could make it happen. Man, wow. I forgot childbirth used to be so dangerous for women. Yeah, that should be reason enough for people to embrace the miracle. But Jane was a religious conservative, but I've never seen Cromwell accused of causing her death. Now Henry has an heir, but needs a new wife. The foreign affairs element creeps in, the sixth thread from last week's episode. And Cromwell is in charge. He's angling for alliances with the Protestant states in Germany as a long-term counterweight to France and the Empire, Valois and Habsburg. Plus, Cromwell is a determined Protestant himself. It takes three years, but Cromwell arranges a marriage to another Anne, Anne of Cleves. Her brother is the Duke of Clevesburg, and that means kind of a cluster of little dukedoms and principalities in northern western Germany. 
Her older sister is married to the Duke of Saxony, and Henry wants to know if she's pretty. Well, that's different, but come on. It's an arranged marriage. Who wouldn't want to know about that? I guess. A royal marriage is something you do for your dynasty and or your country, so... Cromwell, he's got one of the world's greatest artists around, Hans Holbein. When you think of uh, the portrait of Henry VIII, you're thinking of a Holbein. Holbein goes to Germany and paints her portrait. You can see it for yourself. She looks lovely. But Henry is disappointed when they meet. I know how lame this sounds. There's this sad episode told by the French ambassador. The Henry and his buddies go to meet Anne and her ladies in disguise in this courtly kind of Renaissance tradition. Or Henry approaches Anne in disguise, but she kind of blows him off, ignores him. She's not charmed by him at all, doesn't know the game. Feelings are hurt. And this is one of history's worst blind dates ever. Have you ever had a bad blind date? You know, yeah, I've always thought blind dates are pretty fun. I usually start the conversation and lead it in a way where we talk about our aspirations and then I'm just saying very dark humor and watching them cringe. I don't go blind dates very often now. I remember this one moment when I had a blind date and the moment I went around the corner and saw them, they seemed like the type of person that was looking around searching for me. I made an excuse and turned around the corner and just went home. Yeah, that's exactly what Henry would have done, if not for Cromwell. Henry does not like her looks and lack of charm and wants out of the marriage. But foreign affairs predominate, Cromwell wins the day, and Henry has to marry her. They say, officially, that Henry could never get it up for Anne. Yeah, history's like that sometimes. And you have to wonder, it is a short marriage, it's just six months and then annulled. Anne is treated very well afterwards, by the way. Anne does impossible things like wonder out loud why she isn't getting pregnant when the king kisses her tenderly and lovingly wishes her good night before he leaves her chamber. Is it possible for someone to be so sheltered, so unaware of the spring of life? And you also have to wonder whether there's a medical thing going on with Henry at the same time. I mean, his weight ballooned after Jane's death. Very probably diabetes setting in. He's aging. I mean, if it was a medical issue, maybe six months wasn't long enough to resolve it. In any case, it seems like a shallow thing with so much at stake. She isn't pretty enough. Cromwell, you and your artist tricked me. Cromwell has failed. At this high level of failure is not acceptable. And when Cromwell's noble-born enemies move against him, Henry supports them. Cromwell is executed. Henry treats Cromwell's family very well, which is important to our story because they will produce another great man in three generations. And when Cromwell's executed, he stands up and says, the king has a perfect right to execute me. This is, the, this is a common thing. Uh, if you're being executed by a king and you want to protect the inheritance of your family. The rest of Henry's life is dedicated to the middle path of Protestant Reformation, but backsliding towards the conservative as need to appease the emperor and later France become of great import. And we'll skip over the last marriages. The one to Catherine Howard is more pathetic and more purient. The History of England podcast spent over a year, about 50 episodes on Henry VIII, and that's an excellent resource for you to go deeper. David Crowder really excels at that kind of history. He's very likable, too. He's got to be one of the best humans on the internet. As lame but consequential as the marriages of Henry VIII are, the killing of Cromwell had huge implications. Henry went wilder on foreign policy. He invaded Scotland. He invaded France again. The Scottish War is sometimes called the rough wooing. That's rough wooing. 
trying to force the betrothal of Mary, Queen of Scots, to Edward to unite the island in one kingdom. The war with France was an expensive failure. The new men running England after Cromwell were well-born, but not as competent, something that Elizabeth would take note of and learn from. These wars all cost a lot of money, a lot, and the men running Henry's court would commit stupidity smart people commit. Four years after Cromwell died, they debased the currency. The money in those days was gold and silver. So what that means is they began to reduce the gold and silver content in coins. This is the kind of thing that creates inflation, more economic and social upheaval. Gresham's law comes into effect. Bad money drives out good. You can have both inflation and an inadequate quantity of money. You've heard this kind of stuff before. In modern times, we usually use Gresham's Law to describe the bad effects of organized crime getting into a business or industry. They tend to gain control quickly as decent people won't compete on their terms. This is just one reason it's vital for any stable society to constantly suppress organized crime in all its forms, a practical application of the problem of evil. But what does this mean for 16th century England? It means some coins in circulation have a higher gold and silver content, the old coins, than the new coins. So people stop spending the old coins. They hoard them, so they stop circulating. But pensions, wages, rent, any fixed agreements are denominated in the old money but paid in the new, less valuable money. People who can vary their prices raise them, though this is sometimes illegal. Conflicts ensue. Kingdoms have fallen for less. Prices rise, but some incomes are fixed, and there's a winner and a loser, and the losers are not happy. All right, you're making my head hurt. You have coins that some people like better than other coins, but there was no paper money? Can I be on one of these coins? Uh, Monetary history is complicated. I'm not going there. Paper money, with interesting exceptions, in Europe basically makes its appearance with John Law in France in the 18th century. And that example goes very badly. And But in Henry's time, you literally pay for things with physical gold and silver coins. So Henry's bright idea was to put less precious metal in the coins so they could issue more coins with the same precious metal that they had. So say they collected um, a ton of silver one month via taxation. They could melt down the coins, mix it with other metal, and make three tons of new silver coins and then use three tons of coins to pay their expenses. But that's fraud, a crime. Pretending the coins are equally valuable when they are not, how could they get away with that? And can I do it with them? Of course, it's highly immoral, but the French used to do it all the time, and Henry was copying them. And it's the king issuing coins. The right to issue coins is the primary monopoly of the crown. No private money creation allowed. Who are you going to complain to? Who? Economic growth is hurt, planning is harder or impossible, most people are already poor, things start going backwards. When the consequences bite, they just do it again and again. Funny, early modern England makes a lot of the mistakes Latin America will make in the 20th century. It goes on until 1551 when Henry's dead, and by that time, shillings only have 27% of the original silver content. The debased coins are finally removed from circulation in Elizabeth's time in 1560. Her advisors seem more on the genius level from our perspective. Cromwell is dead. Henry goes off the rails without him. He dies, though, with Cramner holding his hand, 
The miracle is secured and stabilized by his daughter Elizabeth. But what did Cromwell achieve in the Reformation during his lifetime? We talked about the dissolution of the monasteries, England and Wales and half of Ireland, and this is much of religious life, and it is over now. Uh, The friars were the most likely source of religious opposition to Cromwell. They lived in poverty, preached the message of the cross, opposed the ostentatious wealth of bishops and certain religious houses. They were popular across the countryside as preachers, but they were loyal to Rome, and Cromwell came after them in 1538 when he dissolved all the friaries and sent out theater troops to, to teach against them, as well as publishing all sorts of pamphlets against them. Cromwell also moved against shrines, church furniture and images, much of it tapestry. This came under the heading of fighting superstition and was generally supported by the educated self-righteous in society. Shrines? Like places where people would go pray? Or like the kind of shrine that I have in my closet of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever? But why would someone like Cromwell move against shrines? That's my king. No, not your private shrine. That might be something the Inquisition would take an interest in after the Counter-Reformation, but no Inquisition in England. Episode 30 will touch on that. No, these are big Catholic shrines like the shrine of Thomas Becket in Canterbury. It was Protestant doctrine that people at shrines were worshipping, at least partially, the shrine or the saint and not God. So they were violating the first commandment, putting their own souls at risk, and setting a bad example for the young. And besides, only ignorant and backwards people did things like that. It's, it's not that strange. We've got a lot of behavioral regulation today, which is mainly driven by the same monkey impulses. Besides, shrines were very often rich, as people would give them jewels and leave them land in their wills. So just like the monasteries, this was a source of revenue for the crown. And of course, this was very unpopular. The more profound Protestant argument against shrines was around ending the influence of the dead upon the living, an influence that required clerical magic to mediate. More on that next week. Cromwell also supported getting the English Tyndale Bible into every parish, but the impact of a huge book like the Bible would be slow. Cromwell and Cramner recruited and trained preachers to to spread out and preach the theology of the cross and salvation by grace with a mind to carefully emphasize the message of Romans 13.1, to avoid the results of religious radicalism like uh, the Anabaptists, the extreme religious radicals. Henry went a step further than Cromwell and ordered fines to be levied on every parish that did not have an English Bible. Though a few years later he got Parliament to pass an act banning all but the upper sorts in society from reading the Bible. Presumably these would be less excitable and vulnerable to the message of radicals. No, 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 that, no, no. No, it's not okay. He wouldn't let ordinary people read the Bible? Whoa, not letting ordinary people read the Bible was a key Catholic position at this time. It was Protestants that came up with the read the Bible, think for yourself requirement. I mean, this incident is notable as a typical res media kind of move, albeit short-lived. English Bibles were pretty rare when this begins. Only Lollards had them. The Bible was only in Latin before, so that uneducated people could not read it for themselves even after Tyndale made a really good translation, which is still the basis for English-language Bibles. Printing a huge book like that was hard and expensive, and printing was a high-tech enterprise, really. There were only a few centers very good at it. A few places in Germany, the Netherlands, and Paris. Uh, The Paris industry was dedicated to printing French Bibles, until Francis I put a stop to it. 
I think I referred to him as Francois the first a couple episodes ago, but same guy. Francis Francois, same name. Then the French printing industry, which was one of the foremost in the world, switched to printing radical religious texts in many different languages. They printed about 16,000 Tyndale Bibles for Cromwell. And Tyndale, by the way, was afraid of arrest in England for his radical views, so he was in exile in the, in the Netherlands, but the Habsburg emperor had him put to death there. So no place to hide sometimes, I guess. English Bibles were just recently available and legal for people to read. Henry's prohibition on the lower classes reading the Bible lasted just a few years. Now, this is a major theme of the English Reformation, avoiding the radicalism that struck Europe, avoiding the peasants' revolt, and the civil wars that racked France and Germany and the Low Countries. Those were examples to be avoided. Another reason the body count of the Reformation was so low in England, as we discussed last episode, was that everyone from Henry to the dedicated Protestants were trying very purposefully, to keep religion from causing civil war. Around the same time, owning and reading Bibles became legal in Scotland. All along the coasts of Britain, different flavors of Protestants were mingling in the port towns with people from the Netherlands and northern Germany, and we see evidence that these were linked with older Lollard communities who now did not have to live an underground existence. And what we see in England is that the radical religious ideas of the 1540s and 1550s did catch on in England and Scotland, but in a more tolerant way. They didn't penetrate the official church until after they'd non-violently penetrated the minds of the British. And basically, they would all be Calvinist in beliefs, without ever applying that name to themselves. So, true to the ideals of love in at least one sense, they didn't have the great need to kill everyone who disagreed with them. I mentioned that Henry died holding Archbishop Cramner's hand in 1547. Cramner later turned England into a safe place for religious radical refugees from all over Europe, not including Anabaptists, of course. But the Reformation had one threat still ahead. Edward's reign was short, only six years. The poor boy died at 15, and although they tried to put a Protestant relative, Jane Grey, on the throne, people wouldn't stand for it. They put Mary Tudor on the throne, even though, or in some cases because, she was a dedicated papist, and she would go down in history as Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary? What kind of name is that? <laughs> that sounds like the title of a horror movie. Oh, that was her popular nickname. The English of the time really didn't mind a few extreme religious radicals getting burned. They had low status, and people thought it was a fair professional risk for a religious radical, but Mary did a lot of burning including women, people who were really not that wild. And she let all the highborn people off. So it seemed like one set of rules for them, a different harsher set for us. That's no good. And then she married Philip, the future king of Spain, Philip II. That's right, the man who was Protestant's existential enemy and who was to become England's existential enemy. Anyway... Her role in the Reformation will be the subject next week, after Conversations with Cammie. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cammie, you've had a chance to listen to Cyrus and episode 26, Anne Boleyn Must Die. What'd you think? Well, it was great to hear from Cyrus, but I really hope he doesn't start doing things like counterfeiting coins. Or yeah, let's hope he's just joking or, about uh, that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's great to hear from Cyrus today. 
I don't remember. How many marriages did Henry have? He was Henry the Eighth. He had six. Yeah, was six. Yeah, I, I his, his last one was actually probably his best in the sense that he married a kind woman who was really good at uh, managing the family and bringing them together, at least on the surface. But yeah, what I hope this episode got across was that whole sequence seems just like the actions of kind of a pathetic, lame, selfish man who just happens to be king. And then the next question I would have would be, do we know how many children he had from those six marriages? Well, he had three that lived. There was Edward, who was king, Mary, who would be queen after him, and Elizabeth, who would be queen last, and she would have this long, fantastic ring. He also had an illegitimate son, which he was just seemed like he was really close to legitimizing uh, before he you know, finally backed away from doing it. By the time the Bible became a legal thing to have in the home, by the time we could own one, how many people, what was the percentage of people who could actually read it? Well, okay, so you start off with Latin Bibles being completely okay although they're practically impossible to have because, you know, they have to be handwritten before printing. And then with only a few Lollards having actual English Bibles that were translations from people that worked for Wycliffe. Then we had, oh, what was the guy's name? Coverdale? Coverdale? And he made some Bibles in the 1520s that were printed, small portion. Uh, and it wasn't really till the Tyndale Bible that there were large amounts of them even possible for people to get their hands on. Yeah, so literacy was as high as 70% of the yeoman class, which is, you know, the, the class that begins to matter, and, and probably higher than that going up, at least in the southeast of England, and probably lower, like in the 30% region in the north. And as the years go by, that literacy rate is just going to go up and up and up. The demands of uh, the requirement to read the Bible is going to drive uh, literacy down into the very lowest classes. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. When how much of literacy? Oh, was there's some due controversy to, was about due it. To because the Bible f- being available and people being curious, a lot well, of people learn. We to really read do from think. Do you think that the availability of the vernacular Bible? increased literacy. There were some commercial areas, though, even in the Catholic parts of Europe, where literacy followed almost the same trajectory as it did in England. So it's, you know, of course, when you get into the details, it's always a little bit muddled. Now, did you say that they started teaching salvation by grace? And did you quote 13.1, Romans 13.1? Rulers on earth are also put there by divine power. They're not saying it's satanic. And and that's the one that is in conflict with Acts 5.29, which says a Christian is a, a free lord of all. Or it says, obey God, not man. Luther was the one who came up with that formulation of a Christian's a free lord of all. When Cromwell and Cramner sent out preachers, the emphasis was to make sure people respected the the powers that be so that they didn't end up with the kind of uh, crazy things that were happening on the continent. In other words, your rulers were put into effect, instituted by God. Therefore, listen to them. Yeah, and we'll see when we get to Elizabeth's time. They don't even really need to have this message anymore because it's going to seem to everyone like God came in and intervened on her side, on the, the side of the Church of England. And so it was sort of a, a extraordinarily powerful argument for supporting the Church of England. Yes, it sounds like it was. 
Yeah, it's the end point of a subtle argument, but yeah. Almost I would hate to get too close to King Henry. Oh, yeah. Being a courtier was a key to wealth and power, but was also very dangerous. It sounds like it. Yeah, it's a game with a high body count. I think I would have been fearful had I been a young maiden chosen to go meet and marry Henry yeah. VIII. Sensible people stayed away, but the ambitious were attracted. So I know next week you're going to talk more about Bloody Mary, Henry's daughter, who, who took over the throne after Edward died. But you threw out here that Mary had a tendency to let the highborn people off and not burn them. What yeah. was that about? Well, I, I guess I'm a little concerned that could be misconstrued because she did, she did kill a fair number of highborn people as well. But they were all as political enemies, like they were the ones supporting Jane Grey, and all those people were killed. Or they were a part of Wyatt's rebellion against Mary, the rebellion prompted by her marriage to Philip. She killed all those people, and, you know, happily. But that was more typical royal stuff, that people that opposed you for political reasons, you would go ahead and kill. I'm more likely to have a short life expectancy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, but what I'm talking about is for the crime of heresy, for just uh, having a heretical view and speaking it out loud so that uh, other people would hear it. And for that, she always pardoned the gentry and the nobility. And uh, she pretty much didn't for the lower classes. She's keeping the lower classes in line. Everybody was keeping the lower classes in line. They were very much afraid of the lower classes. A lot of the activity that went on was basically to keep them keep them down, but also keep them adequately happy so they wouldn't uh, have uh, these big revolts like they were having in Germany and France. So keep them well fed. Not oh, a most not pleasant easy time. Thing. It wasn't a pleasant time to be lower class. I think it had to be about day-to-day -day treatment because there were some horrible climate events in the 1550s when Mary was queen that were... The harvests were very poor, and that caused a lot of people to go hungry. And then again, in the 1590s, there was a European-wide horrible climate event. Three really bad summers in a row. And food prices, you know, went through the roof, and a lot of people starved. It was a really bad time. It was better for the nations that could trade, like the Dutch and the English. But it was, uh, it was horrible for Europe. And, and there was uh, hunger, I mean, real lose 30 pounds type hunger in, in England in those times as well. Sounds like a very difficult time to live. And we can be grateful we're living after the miracle. Yes, we can. Thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome. And thanks, Cyrus. I appreciated the take you had on the podcast. Although I expected you to talk about Holbein. And to Anonymous, thank you for your kind support. And finally, please leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.